0: everyone welcome back to the hopeless romantic i'm austin chant i'm amanda jean and we are joined today by Rosaline maltese uh, to talk to us about uh poly and Minaj fiction
1: among other things um Rocheline is uh, the co-author of the love in los angeles series the love's labor's labors series and uh interestingly has the art of three coming up yes i did my research i read
2: <laughs>
1: i read many a blog post Um, an upcoming poly romance with Erin McRae. Um, She's also a producer and writer on, I should have checked this one too, is it Tremontane? It's Tremontane. Okay, Tremontane. The serialized prequel to Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, which I think a lot of people will be familiar with. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. And then I thought it would be fun to, because I, I realized something the other day, and that was exactly a year and a day ago. Roshalina and myself met up in Hollywood, California for coffee.
2: (laughs) It was literally a year and a day ago. That's so funny. And I actually was thinking about that the other day because I'm almost always in L.A. this time of year. And this is a year where I will probably not be in L.A. I was thinking, that's so strange. Um, So (laughs) I think it's hilarious that it was apparently this weekend.
1: Yeah, I, I hadn't realized. I knew that it was roughly in March that was when I moved to LA last year. But I had no idea it was, I, I double checked on my Instagram because I had taken a picture on the walk home and it was like March 12th, 2015. It's like, wow, that's really fortuitous timing. Surely that's a good uh, omen. It
0: was fated to be today. <laughs>
1: it was, or yesterday. Um, and then I was also going to talk a little bit about how um, Roshley and myself met and that was in the Glee Phantom. <laughs>
2: I love that you said that in a way that was both like super cheerful and yet you can hear the eye roll. <laughs> you can hear it kind of the the shame, like a a borderline shame, but not really See, I, see, I don't have that. Like, I, I am still kind of oddly this great defender of the show. Um, for <laughs> <I> me, <know. laughs> like, 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 Ryan Murphy was totally okay. The fandom was kind of hard for me to take. Um, but oh, I fandom. realize I am like out in the wilderness with that worldview. So <laughs> it's just one of those funny things where
1: um, when you sit down and try and trace how you met someone, like ours is such a particular time i think in our lives like yes time period like the glee fandom was a fever dream that i was in and still vaguely care about (laughs) and i've i uh i think we must have met each other in like 2011 so it's been a while it's been five or or so years
2: yeah, I'm always surprised sort of like by how long those things go on, because uh, Aaron and I um, and our co-writing, we also met through the Glee fandom, and we were um, we have a writing office in Philadelphia where neither of us live. She lives in Washington, D.C. I live in New York, and we meet there on the weekends to work on stuff. And we were there yesterday, and we realized that it, we'd had the office for three years, which seems impossible to us, because um, it, it's like, oh, right, this just started last September, but that's... Entirely not true.
1: <laughs> it happened three September. It started three September's ago. Yeah, so that's very strange.
0: <laughs> yeah, when you said 2011, five years ago, my brain just sort of stuttered. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, um, so that's the background on how uh, Rosslyn and myself met, and um, hopefully, someone out there will find that moderately amusing. That through the trials and tribulations of the Glee fandom. <laughs>
0: great things came of it
1: we yeah definitely and i actually had a really good time in that fandom like for all that it gave me a a pretty persistent headache it was a fun time and it was um it was right when lj was dying out and so everyone was making the shift to tumblr and archive of our own and it looks very different from what it used to
2: i mean i think it really helped a lot of people move i'm For me, I was one of the people who was trying to sort of hang on to LJ. And then, like, Glee fandom just wasn't happening there. So it sort of forced me to accept that we were doing another great fandom migration. Because I'm old enough that I've done this from site to site to site. And I was so, like, I don't want to do this again. Um, But it really forced me to. And that's fine. Because I would like to be able to interact with people. And Tumblr is apparently where that happens. Even if it is a little bit, you know, blinky, not thinky. So...
1: Yeah, yeah. I made the the migration from eGroups to Yahoo Groups to LJ to sort of Dreamwidth, and then finally to Tumblr. And I'm like, "Where's the next thing? I'm excited for the next thing. That means I can actually talk to people."
0: And I still cling to Tumblr, bitter, bitter fingers.
1: <laughs> we'll wrench them off. It's cold, dead Yahoo-owned corpse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so- <laughs> So despite this, despite the detour into nostalgia, this episode is primarily about um, polyamory and Minaj. And uh, one of the reasons I thought Rocheline would be good for this is because I knew that she was cooking up some things that were poly and or Minaj. And I also know that I've, I've seen her talk about like the different sort of relationships you can see in romance. And I, it was an automatic connection in my head. I had a list of topics and a list of potential guests. And this one was immediate.
2: See, it's funny because it was sort of exciting for me because when the, the first book that Aaron and I wrote together, um, Starling, and and that whole series, and we are working on the fourth book in that series now, when we wrote it, we didn't think of it as a poly story in any way. And then when we started writing the later books in it, we realized how much it was. It always had a supporting character who was polyamorous, but the the main romance really wasn't. But as the story developed, more and more it sort of just became about how people deal with the different tugs on their lives, and not just in terms of romantic relationships and sexual relationships, but you can have new relationship energy with a job, or you can have a breakup with a friend. And and all these things and how we balance them sort of affect everyone, and it became this book where we just sort of started saying, well, this is about how polyamory is relevant to everyone, even monogamous people, because it has a lot to tell us about how we do our other types of relationships too. So we sort of refer to that series that series now as the monogamish series, <laughs> um, because some of the people are always monogamous, and some of the people are always polyamorous, and some people have other experiments or discussions about it and make decisions about it and you know we went into writing romance blind we, we had come out of fandom we had a story we wanted to tell that didn't fit in fandom and involved original characters and we wrote it and we and our publisher marketed it as a romance and it's and it's about people falling in love and finding happiness and then oh my god the reviews came in and they were like this book has cheating And that's when I started to go slowly, quietly insane.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've actually, um, because I've read uh, the first three books, or yes, I've read the first three books in the Love in Los Angeles series, and I actually proofed Doves. I was one of the proofers on it which always amuses me because I got assigned that and I was like I know this person.
2: <laughs> and you got the really dark one in the series like that's the one that I can't reread, I can't look at it. <laughs> it's like there are just scenes in that where I don't I don't know how I wrote it, but I can't I can't go back. You're like I can't Ooh. revisit this. This is haunting. And it even has a happy ending, but I cannot read that book.
1: Yeah, understand? Like I um I actually proved most of it in like a binge. Um, I started, I was proofing it in chunks and then I kind of sat down and, and finished it off in like a night because I, I like the intensity kept ratcheting upward. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I don't know if I can take breaks <laughs> on this one. But it was, it's so funny because the tonal difference between Starling and Doves, is actually, like it's fairly steep because the first one's kind of the, the meat cute and the relationship beginning. And then... The second one is like,
2: ha, ha, ha. you thought you were in for a safe ride, <laughs> strap what's yourself so, in. What's so weird about it is we wrote those back to back. I mean, we were done with the first draft of Doves before Starling even had a home. We just kept going. So I, I know that for readers, there's both the tonal gap and, and the time gap. But for us, it was just sort of like straight through. And, you know, what one of... Uh, It's funny that we mentioned Glee fandom at at the beginning of this because Aaron and I wrote these books, um, the first two anyway, when we were like in this really angry place. Um, we were, we felt frustrated with how people viewed the entertainment industry in fandom versus what I felt was my experiences with it. Um, I'm a SAG actor. Um, I was in revolutionary road. Like I've, I've been in films. I I know a lot of people who have been very successful in films. I know how the industry works and the disconnect between the two things, Um, was really one of the reasons that these books got written. And I think by the time we wrote the second one, we were just really frustrated. And there was some really dark stuff that we wanted to explore. Um, But the other thing is also that romance is about the happily ever after. And I love that. But in many ways, romance is always about an origin story, and I feel like the more complex stories in our lives start after that. They start, you know, not, they don't end with the wedding. They start with the wedding. So what we really enjoy doing, and and Erin Aaron is, Erin's a policy wonk, right? Like she's obsessed with the West Wing. Um, she's into legislation, not charismatic speeches. So we were just interested in how people work and what the logistics are. And a lot of that is why we write so many stories that have poly or poly elements in it is just how do you deal with the stuff life throws at you how do you deal with the thing when you're deeply in love with someone but you feel like you can't be together or you don't know how to have a relationship in a responsible way even though you really want to so doves really has so much of that struggle and the third book in the series for anybody who might happen to to pick these up after being like oh it's all angst um Also has difficult things that happen, but all the characters have really sort of gone through a trial by fire up to that point, and they know how to meet their challenges. So the first one is the meet cute. The second one is, oh my God, being an adult is really, really hard, especially with external pressure. And the third one is life can throw terrible things at you, and you come out stronger and happier and more connected to the people in your life for it. So
0: you get to the happy ending.
2: Yeah,
1: they have to earn it. They have to suffer to have their happy ending.
2: I never thought I wrote angst until I read reviews, and then I'm like, oh, apparently I write angst. Okay, now I understand. <laughs> well,
1: that's like the the difference I think when you when you engage like with the. <sighs> How do I put this? Um, knowing your writing from fandom and knowing just um, like your blog entries and and sort of your your general outlook on relationships, like so much of it is about boundaries and negotiation and self discovery. That if you were to write a romance that had that in it, it was and it was angst free. Like it wouldn't exist. Like there's no <laughs> there's no way to to go through painful self discovery without it being painful <laughs> at some point.
2: Well, here's the funny thing. The, the the book that isn't out yet that is currently um with our publisher, um, who is reading it, although I, I actually think my editor has strep throat at the moment, so um I don't yet Oh no ha- have an answer. Um feel better, Christy. Um, but <laughs> the The Art of Three I think is our our most clearly poly book and actually our least angsty book. And it's about um a married couple in their late forties and early fifties, um, who meet somebody much younger and um they've and the couple they've always been polyamorous their whole they have adult children their whole lives have worked like that it's fine and they meet somebody much younger um that they each wind up in a separate relationship with that's sort of supposed to be a fling and then turns into something more serious and is about how they navigate that and it's not, the adult children are not super, super pleased, but the um, but the three people in the relationship are actually pretty good at doing it. There's not a lot of angst there. There's not a lot of arguing with each other, but there's a lot of how do we do this? How do we balance our needs and our history? And the fact that somebody who's 25 still has a lot of discovery to do and somebody who's maybe, you know, 40 or 50 is like, well, I don't actually want the drama and excitement in my life, even though I'm having this new relationship energy about this thing. And it's just um, it's kind of a, just a very like snuggle in the blankets book about family that is really oddly, surprisingly gentle. But that's because we have these characters who mostly have have done their angst in in the in the backstory and we see some of that backstory and how they've changed from it but we don't put the reader through that this time so it's um it's gentle
0: (laughs) (laughs) i love that not this time readers yes (laughs) (laughs) future pain for you i yeah i actually wanted to ask you um because we recently have discussed a couple times on the podcast how you write relationships between multiple really dynamic characters um, and for the most part, we've talked about that in terms of couples where there's only two, you know, major dynamic characters uh, to deal with. And I I can imagine um, as somebody who is interested in writing polyfiction but hasn't yet that one of the things that I'm going to find difficult is having just sort of a, an escalation of that complexity um, of having even more characters to give screen time to. Um, to give developed voices and that kind of thing. I just read your short Room 1024. And I it was really impressive to me that you balanced four four different POVs in a short piece. So I wanted to ask you what that process is like and whether having a co author helps.
2: Well, having a co author helps for everything or else I would never get anything done. Um, <laughs> Aaron is, um, She's the logistical brain in many, many ways, and I think as somebody who always is interested in a thousand things but has a history of being challenged when it comes to finishing things, um, I love writing with somebody else because I'm just telling her a story, and she's just telling me a story. So it's like, and then what about this? What about this? And if somebody gets stuck... You know, if it's just me, I have to like go walk around the block and be like, oh, shit, I'm stuck. And then, you know, go work on something else. Whereas I can be like, I'm stuck. Can you fix it? So I I do love working with somebody else. And I think having a co-writer who has very different experience, life experiences than me also helps because it brings in new ideas for voices and perspectives. But in The Art of Three, um, we have alternating Cycling chapters. So each of the three people in the triad gets a chapter in the same order through the whole story So we do get to see their individual perspectives on everything What became challenging was at one point we realized we really had to add a chapter But you couldn't add one chapter and keep the cycle. So then we had to add three chapters and we're like, oh man And that when we realized that in edits that that was um, not a super fun moment And in that story, um, it's taking place over multiple countries and multiple locations. And And it's funny because Room 1024, which you've read, that's very much a bottle story. Like people are at a conference, they're stuck in immediate proximity to people, and there isn't really space. But the way we've done it for this novel-length book is to really utilize the space. So the, the woman and the couple mostly lives in Spain in, in a house that she's inherited that's been in her family for hundreds of years. And, that's, and she's a painter, and that's really where her life is based. And her husband's an actor and basically is commuting back and forth between London and their life in Spain. So, And then the, the young man that they meet who becomes part of their lives, he's originally from Dublin, and they meet him in London So by being able to sort of explode the story out to their different centers of gravity, um, Jamie is the young character, and he's dealing um, with—he has a sister who has Down syndrome who gets engaged in the course of the story. So So he's going home to Dublin a lot to help with her life and this exciting thing that's going on for her. And then Nerea, the Spanish woman, is working on a gallery show, and she's very focused on her life in Spain. And then we have Callum, who's centered in London. And because we have the different geographical locations, it really helped us to have their individual voices and give them lives and friends outside of their relationship.
0: But I would imagine it's also a challenge to introduce all of those different elements and kind of set up the whole story I know that's something that I struggle with when I have something that uses a lot of different locations.
2: It's hard. I mean, the biggest thing we struggle with, and we've struggled with, I think, in all the longer things we've written, because there's always a lot of distance involved. And I think that comes from a lot of things. I mean, Erin and I are writing from different cities, and my partner and I both travel a lot for work and are often doing things long distance. And I think it just creeps into the stories. So the problem we always have is, oh, my God, is this book taking place on the phone? Like, like (laughs) people on the phone is not interesting. So that, that's our biggest, the first draft, there'll be like 50 notes being like, can this not be a phone call? Why are they on the phone? I, nobody cares about Skype. (laughs) So, um, for me that that's the challenge, um, that I face, um, because I come at writing through acting, um, and I've also written plays and I do a lot of that. Having distinct voices for people is the easy part. Keeping people off the damn telephone all the time is the hard part.
0: (laughs) You can switch it up, use Google Hangouts. Right, right.
2: Well then then you worry about like, oh, is this technology gonna sound dated? Like yeah. you just it causes all these problems that are incredibly boring problems that often don't matter. So I just try to get people not on the phone.
1: <laughs> I'm just imagining like you, you the one solution of that is just setting it as a not contemporary piece <laughs> it's like what a nightmare though historical well, it, on top of everything else that right. and
2: it's and it's funny cuz we don't really do historical but we, we just got asked um, to participate in a group project about the golden age of Hollywood that we're going to do an all female poly relationship um, story for. And that's exciting. But like suddenly, like we can't use email, right? Because it's like 1948. <laughs> so that that's going to be interesting.
1: It's one of those things where, unfortunately, when you have something that is so character-based, as romance often is, like, it's based on character interaction, a lot of it. And so, essentially, you're like, okay, do I have too many scenes where they're just talking? Like, is that is that too many? Should I eliminate one? Should I give someone something to do? Should I take a break from all the talking?
2: <laughs> and yeah, I'm- or... or- or we have the thing where it's like, oh, God, they're in a restaurant again. Can they not go to a restaurant? Can they go to a museum? Can, Can they just they, like, walk around? this like active.
1: Can they go shopping? But then you then you get to deal with the copy editing process of like, wait, you had them by that statue. And now they're over here. When did they walk over? Did they walk over? Are they like, are they using segues? What's going on here? Uh, I, see, logistics. I love
2: when copy editors are like that with logistics because we get we're very obsessed with them. But it's really funny because you know all these locations that we use, with very few exceptions, are places that I've been um, and that I know well. And we sort of are slowly working our way through like all the countries I've been to. But it's strange sometimes these copy editors will be like, "This doesn't make sense." I'm like, "Well, that that is how that works." So I just need to explain it better because I, <laughs> I can show you the pictures that this is really a thing.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask also about um how your co-writing situation works because it sounds really intriguing you live in different cities but write in a third city
2: right i mean what we're always writing i mean yeah it's there's a very rare day that we're not both working on something and we honestly do everything in google docs um, we don't really divide up stories by chapter or scene or character. It's like just write until the other person interrupts you and starts writing over you or until you go to sleep and then the other person will just pick up wherever. Um, and then we edit it so many times that hopefully I think that there's not a very clear distinction between who wrote what part of what there's been very, a few very limited circumstances where one of us has said to the other, I really don't want to write the scene or I really, Really think you're the person who knows how to do this. Um, There's one character in the Love in Los Angeles series, for example, that Aaron would write sometimes, but if there was a big scene for him, it would always sort of default to me um because because he was sort of mine and he was a very troubling character That i know I just, exactly who you're talking you know, about yeah, it's victor and like he, he was just mine and i just knew how he worked and aaron was welcome <laughs> to write him but mostly didn't want to so um yeah which I, I understand so mostly we're just constantly writing over each other and then when we meet in philadelphia That's either usually in an editing process or in an early brainstorming process, because what we want to do is have outlines that are not just chapter by chapter, but are also like beat by beat within chapters. So we know that the other person can just pick up and pretty much do what needs to be done, at least in a rough draft way, regardless of where the other person is. And we try to be online at the same time a lot, but she has a work situation where her work days start at like 7 a.m. My work days kind of start at 10. I kind of just roll in and then I do most of my writing at night. So we aren't necessarily always there to address problems at the same time. So that's what we like to do when we're face to face. And we also... um, like we're going to do the rainbow book fair in New York in April. So she and her husband, um, and he's a writer too, he's going to come up and you know my partner is also a writer. So the four of us are going to hang out. We have a writer's retreat thing we're doing in May. We rented a house on Airbnb beach. We're going to hang out for four days and hopefully get something done. Um, we all just may, you know, watch movies and, and eat and drink too much, but, but the idea is, is to get things done, but, but we've definitely found that the remote thing is fine, but we have to, to kind of work face to face sometimes or else um, stories become an endless murky middle.
0: Right. And it helps to have that kind of grounding face to face connection I find when I'm co-writing. I've definitely co written with a partner who was traveling, but we were able to to touch base, you know, at least on phone calls and then when she returned to the country and we could see each other again, it got a lot easier to, to fix problems. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I think it's both really important for stories and I think it's also really just important for maintaining relationships because I think we are possessive of our work and I think Aaron and I are pretty good at not having egos about it or being like, no, this is mine or this worked because of me. But, you know, we've both also have had collaborative experiences that have not been as successful. So, and and I've had a lot of collaborative experiences that have been awesome. Um, I wrote a musical um, with Erica Kudish who has a new book out called The Breakup. That's fantastic. And and when she and I have worked together, that's been great. Um Tremonten is um, a collaborative series that um well it's ebook and audio it's text um it's written like a tv show there's a writer's room all the authors argue we divvy up episodes so i really love collaboration but if you don't spend time looking each other in the eye um i definitely think the potential for stuff going wrong both in the story and in that relationship can can be pretty high and in person helps certainly so
1: Well, tone is so important too. And if you're doing everything through writing, it's easy to, through writing. (laughs) If you're doing everything through text, like through emails, it's really easy to misconstrue stuff or to not be on the same wavelength and not realize it. Like I've had that situation where you're, you're talking to someone via messenger or in a Google doc and you're like, I don't think... I don't, I think you're being mean to me. <laughs> like, why are you forcing this change on me? But when you're in person, it's like, oh yeah, cool. That sounds like a great idea. Please explain to me. Like, be animated, be cheerful. And in, in text, you're just like, oh no, what are they telling me to do? I'm not changing this.
2: Right, and I mean, there's also the thing where like different people are louder or more aggressive than other people. And I am, I am a loud, aggressive person and (laughs) yeah you know and 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 Aaron is is very much an introvert and my partner patty um could be an introvert and like they're both people who will speak up when they need to which is great and i have to trust that they'll do that or else i'll be like am i an asshole am i like running over like everything and now everything's going to be a disaster and people are mad at me and that's not true because people who are willing to put up with me have figured out how to deal with me but i definitely early in any sort of collaboration or relationship or friendship when you have that type of volume or aggression in balance um face-to-face is helpful
1: yeah it definitely is and i got i got a lot more done when i was working with someone face-to-face because you could have impromptu more impromptu discussions whereas uh if you're not you know in each other's vicinity you have to schedule shit and people will just not want to get online (laughs) like nah
2: just text me also you kind of when you're doing it if you're in the same room you're doing it as opposed to like hey look at these cat gifts (laughs) yeah did you (laughs) see that youtube video (laughs) like, like to to be fair like that that totally happens all the time where it's like we're sitting in the office in philly or whatever it's like hey look at these cat gifts but then eventually one of us will be like okay let's let's stop now with with the tumblr and we move on
1: (laughs) let's actually get to work austin do you want to grab one of our our other poly topics
0: yeah because we have actually a list of stuff that we wanted to talk about since this is sort of our our episode to start our conversation about um writing polyfiction um well, we
1: we talked, uh, sorry, but we talked a, a little bit about it in our bye 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 episode because one of the things we noticed um in the in the romance and erotica industry is that Polly and Minaj are one conflated with um being bi in in a way that is misleading. And two, <laughs> um we also noted in that episode that a lot of Minaj and poly can only be found in erotica and not in like a traditional romance like imprint.
2: Um I mean it's funny cuz like all of those things are things that we've run into and are complicated and you know we're both bisexual authors often writing about bisexual characters and it gets weird because people will be like oh I'm uncomfortable with like the bi character being poly and it's like well I I I I feel weird when people say it's like bad representation when I'm kind of talking about my own people so so that's strange but I'm I'm aware of it and I'm sensitive to it and certainly in books with large cast of characters like in Starling we have characters who are bi and monogamous and we have characters who are bi and poly and like it, it's you know m- many different people do their lives in many different ways and the idea that those things are just on off switches I just also do not necessarily think is accurate you know there are poly people who like date lots of people and have lots of relationships there are poly people in close triads there are are poly people who have a don't ask, don't tell policy with their spouse that works for them. And, and some people would say all of those things aren't necessarily poly or are, but there's so many different ways of looking at that. So the idea that it's all the same thing or that if you write a bi character who's poly, then it's like the slutty bisexual trope. It's like, well... Only no, if you write it not, that way. <laughs> only if you write it that way. And also, you know, as somebody who, who is bi and has a colorful history, like, I'm sorry, you know, what some some of us at times in our lives are in fact slutty bisexuals, <laughs> and, and that's okay. Um, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with that as long as that's not the only thing out there. And there's a reason that those characters do those things, and it's part of a story and, and has part of the logic. Um, what's very strange for us is this book that our editor, who I think has strep throat, currently has, which is a polytriad, is also the least graphic book sexually that we've ever written. And it wasn't really an intent when we went into it because we started sort of having the idea for these characters and they were hot and we actually really wanted to see them bang a lot. And that's what we thought we were writing. And, um, and then as we started writing it, what we realized is that we don't find writing sex interesting when people aren't working their issues out through sex. And these people were all really well adjusted about what they liked in bed or their ability to communicate how they felt about the people they were sleeping with. And because of that, there was just no point in writing the sex 90% of the time. So it's very much sort of like this PG 13 poly romance my mom can read, um, (laughs) And I'm really sort of delightfully surprised by that because I know there's not a lot of things out there like that. But at the same time, I feel like marketing, it's going to be very weird because I don't think it's a more virtuous book because it's less graphic. And it wasn't a sort of political choice. It's just what happened in telling the story. And I'm really glad that there will be a book out there like that, that that is a poly romance for people that don't want to read erotica but at the same time it it is strange to think of well how am i going to convey that with also not being negative towards books that do have a lot of very significant erotic content um, many of which are other books i have written so (laughs) it's a strange thing to balance
1: there's just a for me it's a conflation and it's 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 limiting to to readers like for example I was researching poly novels a while back, and literally in in the romance category, like I think I looked at a Goodreads list, and I did some additional googling. Like literally, the only results I could find were erotic imprints, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you if you do want your PG thirteen like triad romance, it's
2: hard to find <laughs> if it exists at all. <laughs> the, the only ones I've seen actually have been historicals, mm-hmm. and. And they've been pretty good historicals in terms of their um, accuracy about the period in terms of language, but because of that they almost become ambiguous in what the relationship structure is and if it's romantic friendship or really a triad or like two friends who've gotten married as a way to you know protect their same-sex relationships that may be more sexual so I definitely find the ones that are less graphic to be historicals but because of that there's context loss that I don't think speaks to the modern idea of poly necessarily so yeah it's just like a weird sort of gap in what's out there and I And I I guess I understand it to a given extent. I mean, I I have this unerring ability to want to write the most niche thing possible. It's like, oh, it's a bisexual, non-graphic, poly romance with a 48-year-old heroine. Like, that's really exciting to me. Um, I hope that's exciting to more than five other people. Um, (laughs) So, because I've definitely had that same Goodreads experience that you have.
1: I'm I'm down for that. I'm definitely putting that on my to-read list once it's published or announced it's with christy right you you said it's with christy right now
2: yeah yeah um and it's funny because we've um we've had a lot of stuff with different publishers like we sort of wanted to see where things fit so we have some stuff with dream spinner we have some stuff with Torque, which i will probably call Torcare care for the rest of this call because my <laughs> brain just can't make it go the way the it goes. the discussions uh, of
1: how austin and i say that we just sort of get more and more ridiculous because neither of us want to pronounce it how it's pronounced because it just doesn't work that way in my in our heads so i think uh austin what's been our latest pronunciation
0: i've make an effort to call it torquere <laughs>
2: that's amazing i absolutely love that that's <laughs> really really delightful but they've been super cool to us in that they've been very open to things that are less sort of genre romance and structure which um the love in los angeles books very much are um they're launching an MF imprint, which we don't um, we haven't sent them anything for that, but they've been really good to us about bisexual characters and bisexual content and sort of the weirder, angstier stories we want to tell. And when we finished this book, we're like, well, we can go on a bizarre journey to convince mainstream publishing that this is women's fic that will sell in a mainstream way. Or we can just say this was a labor of love. Let's put it out there and let it find its audience and, and hope that it does something through through word of mouth, which is, I think, what we decided to do because we really felt that um, Torcare would... Tr- would just trust us to to do a story like that, but like we have other stuff floating around with Cleus, we have stuff floating around with supposed crimes i I feel like this is a very small community um, in terms of queer publishing and queer romance publishing, and everybody sort of explores it a lot, but we write so many bisexual characters that that has at times limited us in terms of where we can go, which is also in Interesting and um, unfortunate experience.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who's interested in writing like trans MF, who and I consider that queer, especially when the characters um aren't necessarily straight, I, I totally share that frustration and concern and the hope that that the genre will push into more of a general queer space or even not just a queer space. We were actually, I was actually curious um, to talk to you about whether or not you consider poly to be inherently queer or sometimes queer, um, because I've seen many discussions um, and people come down on on different sides of the issue.
2: I have a pretty strong feeling about that that I think is... um... And And I have the same feeling about BDSM, which I, I think is an unpopular opinion, but I also feel like I say that, and you don't know which side I'm going to come down on. So maybe <laughs> it really is more divided. But I think that to me, queer is it's a quilt bag word. It's, you know, it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, um asexual, questioning, intersex. And it's not, you know, cisgendered, male, female couples who have unusual relationship structures. I mean, that that's my first response is no, you're not queer because you're kinky. And no, you're not queer because you're poly. On the other hand, though, I think both of those relationship activities, behavior, styles, whatever, do make the definition of queer murkier. Because if you're a heterosexual person in a poly relationship, right? So like, let's say I'm a straight woman, in a relationship with a man who is also in a relationship with another woman. And let's say I'm really close to her, and I may not be sexually close to her, but I love her and she's part of my family. Well, if asexual is part of the quilt bag umbrella, how is that love between two same-sex partners of somebody who, but that love may not be sexual, but may or may not be romantic, how is that not queer? So I do have to accept that Polly gets very murky very fast. And if somebody tells me they're queer, I really have no interest in spending time explaining to them why I don't think they are or <laughs> trying to like play detective to the side if I like if if they meet the standard. I mean, I do think sometimes there's an impulse to do that because there there's so much drama about identity in MM fiction and gay lit and LGBT lit and all the different ways we call kind of almost the same thing that isn't quite Right now, and every once in a while you hear this thing where somebody's like, well, I'm an ally and I take the same risks as a queer person. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, like that. That's a big no for me. But, you know, I also think when I was in college, I was really active in student government and I was really active in the LGBT students group. And one of the guys running for campus president came to speak to our group. He was the only candidate um, who did. And he described himself as an ally and it was important for him to come speak to us. And then he lost. He came back to our group two or three weeks later to apologize both for not winning and also for not being brave enough to come out to us at the time because he thought that if he did come out, he wouldn't have had a chance to win. So when somebody says to me, oh, I'm an ally, because I'm an ally, I'm queer, or because I write MM fiction, I'm queer, on one hand, my hackles go way up, and on the other hand, I have to remember that I don't know their story I don't know the life they're living. I don't know the courage that they're trying to find. So as much as a lot of this stuff and these arguments are very important to me and can make me very angry, um, when I am a calm person, when I do have my more generous hat on, which I like to, I'm just not great at it. I'm a native New Yorker. I'm kind of an asshole. Um, But when I really think about it, I just think, you know, if, if that's where someone is, it's kind of not my job to check in on it.
1: Yeah, Austin and I have had a lot of conversations about how like asking for receipts, re-someone's identity is actually pretty, I mean, it can be pretty gross Uh, because a lot of the time when you're trying to figure out who you are and, you know, if you're into labels, what your label is like, that's sometimes not a pretty process and policing it um, can do more harm than good. So I think he and I are both of the wait and see (laughs) mentality. Um, But I I do think it is interesting when um, the word queer gets sort of politicized in that people take it up as as an identity to like, get cred, like street points. Like when on on the one hand, I'm saying like, Oh, I'm fine with people saying whatever. But on the other hand, you know, if someone is straight and cis and writing MM and thinks that that makes them queer, and there's not a, a, a more depth to that story, like, definitely my hackles go up too. like the or when people are arguing that the A in the in the acronym is for allies. I'm like, no, nah.
2: actually. Okay. But, this is, but That's a place where I have to like be an old person because originally the A in the acronym was for allies, not in the sense of straight people who are allies, but as a way to provide cover for people who were questioning or couldn't be out. So when people say the A can never mean that, I'm like, well, the A kind of means that just not in a yes allies way, just in this like way of protecting our own. Um, so I just want to clarify that. Yeah, which does make (laughs) sense to
0: me, because that's where a lot of the the nuance comes into it for me. I know so many people who have come out after identifying as allies for a long time, or who have not come out, but who privately do identify with the community and are able to kind of publicly make a connection there by saying, well, I support people in the community. Um, And I know that, for example, like, I have... For, for most of the time that I've identified with the queer community, identified as bi or gay, it's varied, currently bi, but I have not always identified as trans and I did identify for a long time as an ally. And so I often look at at folks, um, I, I'm not that I try to speculate on other people's identities particularly, but I often look at folks who are kind of identifying closely with the queer community in some way. And I want to make space for them, even if they are not in a place where they are able to say, yep, that's me. Yep, 100 percent. I'm there.
2: Right. I mean, and then there's also, you know, I know people who are like straight cisgendered people whose partners have then come out as trans and they've stayed together. And that's somebody whose internal sense of identity maybe hasn't changed. But now suddenly the world perceives them as queer in a way that the world might not have Previously, So is that person queer? Is that person an ally? And the answer is just one big messy yes, that's sort of up to them to the side. So I, I definitely, you know, this, this is a great moment to ask me the, the question, because I, I have that sort of more mature answer. But when there's another weird editorial that happens in gay lit spaces that, you know, sort of claims status without having earned it, as it were, you know, then I can get all ranty on Twitter and, you know, 140 characters is, is super terrible for nuance. But even when there is another blog post that, you know, makes a bunch of us angry or whatever, we don't know that person's story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I when I do have more than 140 characters, I'm I'm relatively decent at remembering that.
1: <laughs> it's one of those things where I mean, it's understandable that um, queer people have a built-in like self-protection method and want to create their own spaces, our own spaces. But on the other hand, like we're all using like a self-reporting system. Like if someone says that they're queer, like we kind of just have to believe them, <laughs> because otherwise we're we're going around being like prove it.
2: <laughs> and I guess the other thing that's funny is you know self-reporting system. I, I I love that you know. And but that's a really sort of fascinating generational thing too, because like when I was starting college in 1990, just having it be the campus LGBT group. Oh my goodness, four letters. That was such a big deal. That was so controversial. That was so new and edgy. And what are these new identities? And now I'm like, I don't actually know what all these letters stand for. And there's like 87 flags and I don't really know what's going on. And that's not really a judgment it's just like at at a certain point all of us become oh my god get off my lawn (laughs) um and i just accept that i'm old and i don't get it and if somebody tells me they're queer and they want to write me a paragraph about their queerness that's cool and if they don't that's cool and i'm just going to be like in my corner being old
1: (laughs) (laughs) I um I actually recently had a discussion on Facebook because someone was asking like what's the what's the preferred acronym now? Like what's the order? What's the preferred order? Is it and they were like I still use G L B T and like, is that fine? <laughs> I'm like, well, there's no one really going behind you and saying that you can't use something. Like, um, some people really do not like the word queer. I love it. You know, like it's, people are going to argue about queer for completely understandable reasons on both sides. And, um, personally, like not to take a swift detour into telling people what kind of acronym to use. Um, one of the reasons I'm so fond of LGBT, QIA plus plus is putting the L first really makes a statement about prioritizing our prioritizing groups in the acronym who don't get the most media attention. Like if G is first, well, G is always first. It's always first. So it's nice that there are variations like even people using quilt bag like that's nice.
2: I, I love quilt bags. It's funny. Yeah, it's cute. Um, and it, and it rolls off, <laughs> off the tongue. But you know, now that we have both allies and asexuals in there, like I always joke that it's like quilt bag. <laughs> like it's, a, it's like the sheep thing that happens. In the middle. It's like, ah, like how many more A's can we add? <laughs> we'll find them. We'll and put I'm every happy to A have in have there. them all. It's just very funny to pronounce.
1: Yeah. I, I've seen a couple other acronyms that were not so catchy because I do not remember what they are. And I was just like, I feel like we're, we need to just, I don't think that we need to pick one, but we may maybe need to pick five. <laughs> like there's so many letters in here, it's not a word anymore. But yeah, that is one of the things that's um when Austin brought up the topic of talking about like the intersectionality between being queer and being poly, and and um, that was one of the things where I was like, yeah, talking about identity is always a tricky thing because sometimes it's kind of ugly and sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense because. That's just how people's brains work.
2: And and there is the generational thing and the cultural thing. And and there's a regional thing with it. You know, I, I travel abroad so much that there's definitely terms I use that to me are like either super neutral or super common. And, you know, English speakers I deal with elsewhere either haven't heard them or like, oh my god, you can't say that, or or vice versa. My my day job, we have an office in in South Africa, and the last time I was down there, I was talking to somebody and they were asking me about colored people in New York. I'm like, we don't say that in America. So, but then I got this whole lesson, you know, about identity and and race and how that's been constructed in South Africa post-apartheid, which was super fascinating. But it was the thing of here are all these well-intentioned people trying to talk about challenging issues from their very different perspectives. And we all may speak English, but it doesn't mean that the right term for the right person in one place is remotely the right term for somebody in some other place.
0: I'm trying to figure out how to jump. We well, you know I'll just jump to uh, <laughs> other things in our topics list because we we have sort of a bunch of different disjointed topics. Um, I wanted to ask you um, I, I, I assume you have marketed stuff as both Minaj and Polly. Um, I know that I've talked to folks recently who were not clear on the distinction or who were not clear when one term was appropriate. Um, so, as somebody who has uh, written both, how do you um, distinguish between them and market them differently or the same?
2: Well, I, well I, don't, I don't really know that I've written Minaj, honestly, or that I've marketed anything that way um, what I do, I do find though that I don't necessarily market things as poly because that's a word that I feel like, oh wait, everybody knows what that word is, right, because my life is just filled with the types of nerds who are polyamorous, right like there are a lot of poly people in my life, I've been in poly relationships at various points in my life, but for people who who aren't living that life or don't know those people I don't necessarily know it's a super common term so I will just, you know put the, the gender abbreviation Abbreviation, the the you know whatever number of m's and f's I need with slashes um you know and and hope that that's clear to people or I'll say you know a polytriad romance or but I think it's just hard and I think in the romance community it's crazy hard you know my definition of cheating is when somebody breaks a relationship agreement with somebody about physical or, in some cases, emotional activity. And sometimes in romance, the definition of cheating is, okay, that couple broke up in the middle of the book and they're going to get back together at the end. But while they're broken up in the middle, they slept with other people and that's cheating. But they broke up. It's chill. I don't get that. So I just try to be as descriptive as possible and often sort of just shy away from saying poly or menage unless I'm speaking to a community that, self-identifies or has declared their specific interest in one of those terms because the second I use those terms outside of people who say we're into this term I don't know what people actually think I mean that's like one of the big obstacles I've found is you know there's so much allergy to cheating in romance which is fine like I I totally I get that and I've, I've taught myself to get that you know t- to me the the worst things that you can do in relationships maybe isn't cheating sometimes it is but it's usually like a symptom of something else and sometimes it's like oh my god like you forgot to throw out the garbage again like it can be a sign of disrespect or bad communication or fear and all of those things are more interesting to me than Somebody cheated, and now this is the worst thing ever, and they can never be redeemed. So I had to like really learn what a taboo cheating was in romance fiction, but then I've subsequently had to learn that lots of people define it differently. And lots of people define Polly differently and lots of people define Minaj differently. And then there's this whole thing in Minaj where it's like, well, if it's two guys and a girl, do we mean that the guys aren't allowed to touch each other? Or they are? And and once upon a time, like a bazillion years ago, I was on a panel at a sci-fi convention and this woman sitting next to me Start, who wrote Menage started talking about like, well, this is like one woman getting two men, but the men don't touch each other. I don't write anything gay, just so we're clear. And there was like a tone in her voice. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm on a panel in front of people. And I can't like... I can't like start a war. I just have to pretend that that was a neutral statement. You can't statement. just start screaming. <laughs> right. And it, and it was like really freaky. So I, I know that Minaj means like 87 different things and it depends. And, you know, we just talked about how, well, is there a difference between GLBT and LGBT? Well, let me tell you, there's that huge difference between MMF and MFM. Yep. And, and if you put FMM first, that mean it's like a dominant female with two dudes. And at a given point, I can't decipher the code. I can't do it and I just I just need a paragraph. <laughs> I was thinking about that like
1: Uh, I've edited for a couple houses that do some menage um, erotica and romance fiction. And um, (laughs) some of the imprint criteria was very specific in terms of like, there can be no cheating in this story. It's like, well, what constitutes cheating? It's like, I don't understand because I have a a cheating squick, but it's one of those things where I'm like, you really need to be specific about what cheating means in this circumstance. Like I've edited many... uh, uh actually I now I can't think of what acronym it would be, or not even an acronym. I think it was like M F M. And um <laughs> I was reading it and I was just like, these dudes are clearly like in love with each other and this woman. Like, why what why can they only like lay on a separate sides of the bed? They can't look at each other. Also, though the funniest thing to me is when um like you're labeling it as Minaj. And, like, it is Minaj, but the two of the characters are related, which happens a lot. And I'm just like, how does that dynamic work? Like, because it's a given that it's going to be intimate.
2: And for some reason, those books aren't taboo. Like, no, right? they're we not. Have this category of, like, because there's that whole stepbrother thing is really popular right now. Mm-hmm. And without judging it, that whole stepbrother thing is really popular right now and yet nobody and and some people are really squicked by it and some people aren't yet nobody bats an eye when Minaj involves two brothers mm-hmm. um and I and I can't just blame Supernatural for that so just, <laughs> which I don't even watch I just like to make fun of it because I'm a bad person but like I <laughs> like I just I don't I don't get it and like all the labels are confusing and then the other thing that happens is you know I do write a lot of stories that are are very centered on men or, or don't necessarily have, have women in them romantically. But more and more, Erin and I do. We, we also have um, an MF romance that we're shopping right now. But, you know, if we wanted to write a poly romance that was MFF, finding a place to publish that would be literally almost impossible if it wasn't erotica, because a lot of the places, a lot of the queer presses take MM only, or they'll take Minaj if it's MMF. But the second, it's MFF. They won't, and to a given extent, I understand that because I, I think it feels so often like it's for the straight gaze. This idea of like a dude with two chicks or whatever, and I, I think my own life experiences to to a given extent just again to go back to you know me as the slutty bisexual trope, bear that out. But at the same time, why why can't I write a female heroine who has a female lover and a male lover? Well, I can't, but I'd probably have to self publish it. Um, there's there's almost no room for it and i and i get how that's happened both in terms of what sells and in terms of concern about the male gaze but it's not something that makes me happy as a bi woman to know how much um there are negative assumptions about that that make that type of story almost impossible
0: well and it's a huge shame to see ff thrown under the bus because it might in some cases be written for the male gaze you know it's like you've you've thrown many babies out with the bathwater at that point. You you eliminated but I don't
2: even necessarily think it's always political. I mean, I think it's that, but I think also people are like, well, this isn't what women are buying. But, you know, I've talked to lots of straight women who, who who say to me that they're straight and they're like I actually really like reading FF because it's about two female bodies I have a female body so that's hot and appealing to me even if I'm not attracted to women I can identify with both of those characters and that's interesting so I think there's a bigger FF market than people think but I think publishers just think it doesn't make money in addition to the male gaze problem and I don't necessarily think that's true and I also don't know that I care you know I do a lot of in-person book sales and events and I was at the Brooklyn Book Festival last year where where I actually did very well and I have um, a novella in a lesbian werewolf anthology and some guy awkwardly sort of comes up to the table and he's like would it be weird if I bought this book and I'm like No, I mean, I was like, look, I'll be blunt with you. This book, this is not an erotic book. So if you're here because you think two chicks are hot together, I have no problem with that. But this probably isn't going to meet your needs. Um, If you're like, wow, this sounds really interesting. And I also like dig lesbians for whatever reason. Like, that's cool. But it's like werewolf chicks with swords going on adventures who happen to be lesbian. And he's like, "No, I'm really into that. I just think people will think it's weird." I'm like, "Well, people think everything's weird. Just whatever, you know." And he bought the book and it was fine. I was I was sort of delighted that we had this weird sheepish conversation <laughs> about lesbian werewolves. I love that.
0: Yeah, I have a I have a theory just to jump back real quick to to the point about kind of cheating and how it's perceived in polyfiction or even in Minaj. and maybe a theory as to why the stepbrothers thing or the or the two brothers two brothers and a woman thing doesn't bother people it it one something that came up in the bye 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 episode was that there's a there's a thing in romance about your your character's only wanting each other and only having an interest in one person that is special and is completely different from their previous relationships from any future relationships they might have that is like this person is the one and that that's like people get weird about that with bi characters uh because there's this idea that if you are attracted to more than one gender that that's somehow going to complicate that further sigh Sigh. sighs loudly (laughs) (laughs) but uh and and i wonder almost if that there's something to the idea that like if they're if they're two brothers then obviously they're not into each other so, at least there's not that. They can
1: turn their their romantic attention, their their pure and elevated romantic attention to the the woman in the situation. Yeah, I think that it's not it's there's not a conflict of interest, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's almost like well, there's no there's no conflict of interest. Whereas I think the idea that two characters who are not in a relationship with each other at the time when they see other people, there's still there's like a discomfort with the introducing another element or introducing the idea of more nuance in that relationship or the idea that they might be able to be with other people and still be satisfied or get something out of that, which I find frustrating.
2: (laughs) This is like one of those moments um, I keep having this conversation with people about what a romance is. And of course, in RWA, the definition of a romance is a story focused on a relationship that has an emotionally satisfying happy ending. Everything I write by that definition is absolutely positively a romance. But I feel like when when people say they want to read a romance, what they're looking for I think is a lot of what you describe in that sense of there's that one true person and it's and and nothing else sort of pierces the the intensity of, of that love. And those are great stories. I mean, I I I read stuff like that. I read stuff like that in fan fiction. I read stuff like that in pro-fiction. I do find stories like that very satisfying. Um, I just don't tend to write them. And not even, you know, because of the poly. Even when I'm not writing poly, I'm really interested in people making a choice. I'm really interested in this idea of, well, a lot of people, especially the people we love to write in romances, right, who are attractive, who are successful, who have really intriguing lives and a lot of charisma, at a given point... You can keep having these adventures and, and having all this new relationship energy, or you can choose and you, you can choose to be some, with someone and do the work with them and build something you know, bigger than the two of you and more than you thought you could ever have. And that's kind of what really turns my crank, at least about writing romance. I have really come in the last couple of years to understand why that is either threatening or not satisfying or too stressful a read for some people who or choosing genre romance, um, specifically for that idea of, of total trust and safety in a relationship rather um, than I de- a, a choice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's something it's like, they, I mean, I, I read this, I write this, I see it every day of my life. Um, it's, it's this, I think, idea of, Um, An attraction or a love that's so powerful that it sort of puts blinders on you like this is what you want and this is what satisfies you completely and totally and you trust this person 100% rather than someone who's like probably a really good match and you really dig them but you have to make a conscious choice to change your life and merge it with theirs. And uh, like you said, do the work. Like there it's it's I guess less attractive when it's like free will. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the, the, well, here's a, a ridiculous analogy. I don't know if either of you watch House of Cards, but the, the fourth season just happened, and there's actually this moment where like Frank Underwood, evil president of the United States, like gives America like this poly one hundred and one explanation in like the second to last episode of the season. I'm like, I can't believe this is where America's going to learn this. But he like says to his wife who, who's having an affair with somebody else, it's like. It's okay. Like one person can't possibly meet all your needs. And it's this whole thing about their like very committed partnership. But part of that commitment is no, you need to also do these other things because I know I have you a 100- 100 and 20% so of course you can do those things it's not a threat it's just what you need to do and I just thought it was so interesting because to me I was like yeah that makes total sense I'm like oh wait for a lot of people this is like totally why these people are evil and I'm like oh I love freaking Claire's (laughs) marriage it's so great
1: I I know I love their marriage so much, and it's they. I mean, they're both kind of like in their various ways terrible, but their relationship is not what makes them terrible. The relationship is the most functional part of them. <laughs> I love that they're in in many ways like I guess not maybe generational, but like a lot of people's introduction to how uh, a non monogamous relationship would work. That's something if the, if they're you know
2: sort of a mainstream introduction to uh, yeah. I- I'm I'm delighted by that. I wanna know what that's like for people who haven't <laughs> already had that thought process. Is that like are they thinking, oh, Frank and Claire are cool and sexy and maybe I should explore this in my life? Or are they thinking, oh my god, like and I, I'm I'm still so good. I'm not gonna spoil the thing that happens at the beginning of season two. But like Frank did that thing. I can't ever be polyamorous. Like, like <laughs> how like what is that like for people that aren't me? I have no idea.
1: <laughs> it's like seeing the seeing outside the forest when you're in it
0: yeah <laughs> that actually um maybe dovetails into another topic i wanted to ask you about which is what are your favorite and least favorite tropes in polyfiction?
2: hmm <laughs> that implies there's enough of it that there are, <laughs> that
0: there are tropes
2: <laughs> even that just there are tropes. even
0: just for you to write i suppose If you feel like such a thing exists.
2: I, one of the things that I don't really, the the least favorite thing for me is when people have angst about what they're feeling. I'm much more interested in people having angst about how to do it. So when people are like, oh no, I love two people. How will I ever solve this? Like, I don't care. When people are like, oh, okay, I dig both of these people and now I have to talk to them. How should I do that? And what's that like? And what's that awkward dinner like? And how do we create a calendar? Um, like the, that sort of stuff is interesting. me, But the initial sort of guilt and angst thing that I think sometimes gets written about it isn't interesting to me. I mean, it's like the debate in, in the gay-like community about the idea of gay-for-you stories. And if that's a misnomer, if that really exists, what we're actually talking about is bisexuality. Erin and I wrote two novellas that sort of technically fit gay for you, but it's like, it's a character who um, is divorced. He used to be married. He, he meets this guy who's really into him and he doesn't go, Oh my God, I'm so straight. What will I do? This has never happened. I'm still straight. He's like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm sort of into this. All right. I wonder what the label is for that. I wonder how I feel about that. So it's never like, Oh no, I can't be attracted to this dude. It's like, well, apparently I am. What do I do next? I'm very interested in what happens after people accept their feelings, and I'm much less interested in that part where people sort of wrestle and have guilt or, or try to decide if this is okay. And I realize that that, that, that part of the story um, is really interesting and compelling for a lot of people because that's work that they want to do or they have done or they imagine doing or is what would happen to them if this sort of thing cropped up in their life. And it's weird because I'm like such a high, strong, freaked out person about so much stuff. But when things happen, I, I, I don't, in in terms of my inner landscape, I don't tend to be like, is this okay? I tend to be like, oh shit, well, that's going to make things crazy. How do, how do, what do I do about it? So I don't have that. I don't really have a moral process about it. Um, Yay for being raised agnostic in New York. So, (laughs) um, so for me, um, I, I don't, my stories don't tend to spend a lot of time on that type of angst, and the stories that I enjoy reading um, also tend to skip over that kind of angst. <laughs>
1: yeah it's it's one of those things where i feel like i don't know like there's a there's a payoff for a lot of people reading that internal angst like the swimming around trying to come to a decision and then for other people it's like oh can i slog through this to get to the next part (laughs) and depending on the genre i honestly fall on either side of that coin like sometimes i really want to be there in the murk of like figuring out like oh no the angst i i'm having a bisexual revelation (laughs) like i need to deal with my revelation and then there's the stuff where I'm just like, can we get on to the to the relationship dynamic now, please?
2: Yeah, and I and I do think, you know, my feeling about it, well, I know it's fine. Like if it's YA or um New adult, right? We're still, we're still talking about new adult. That's still a thing. Um, like I get that there's more of that process, but when it's older characters, um, which I do, I do tend to, because I'm older, um, I do like to write older characters. I also, I'm a huge sucker for age difference. So I usually have like one character who's like, oh no, what's going on? And then the older person being like, chill. It's fine. <laughs> or in the case of the gay for you novella, that's actually just a bisexual novella. Um, that's a case where it's the older person having the bisexual revelation. And like the 23 year old is like, hey, but this is awesome, right? <laughs> was that so, is That, that was um, sort of how we played those power dynamics? Was that
1: the first one in the Love's Labors series? Yeah, that's I was yeah, reading that so- last night, funnily enough. Because I'd had it on my Kindle and I'd started it and then because I have no attention span, I had put it down and not come back to it. And I was like, I'm going to read it. I'm going to sit down and read it. I actually really liked it. The, the tone was great because you got to do creepy, like magical realism things kind of with the woods and like, I don't know, just something about the whole situation really worked for me i was like i'm into this also i'm a really big fan of age differences and i'm a really big fan of like bisexual revelations <laughs> like that is like so, a bulletproof so tank.
2: That, i was gonna say so that one was really really written for you yeah we spent <laughs> a lot of time doing magical realism which is weird because people are like is it paranormal it's like not really i like one of the characters may be a changeling but it's not paranormal and Like, people just look at you like you've lost your mind at that point. You're
1: like, what? I just, I just like, it's, it's like a flavor. It's like, you can't quite identify what it is, but you know, it's in there.
0: It's funny, you know, this has actually just clarified something for me that I I hadn't figured out why it bothered me was that so many stories about trans coming out focus really heavily, you know, on the, probably on self-loathing and on, um, you know, how they know and are they certain and no, 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 no. And I think there is value to those coming out stories and it's not that people shouldn't write them, but I see relatively little of the like, what do you do after that? Like, what are the actual mechanics of your life as you come out and come out to the people, you know, and like navigate the world? Cause there's so much complexity to how you navigate the world as a trans person that I think doesn't get explored. And then how does that, how do you navigate relationships and that kind of thing as a person who is actually prepared to navigate those things as opposed to someone who stops at every turn and goes, is this horrible? Can I, can I do this? Is everything about me broken?
2: Yeah. It, it, it's strange. Um, cause we're working on the, the fourth love in Los Angeles book right now. And one of the, for anybody who's listening to this, who's read them, um, Liam, who is our poly um, supporting character. Um, he starts a new relationship in that book, um, with a trans woman and, like, tr- she went through her, her transition process, like, over a decade ago. Like, it's not kind of, like, a thing for her, and it's not really a thing for Liam, because Liam's just chill about everything. But, like, everyone they know is kind of super strange about it. So, um, and that's not the main plot. Um, they actually work together and they spend a lot of time arguing. That's their their main drama with each other. But it, it's, it's strange to write a thing where it's, you know, like, yeah, it's a trans woman, She's going through her life, but it's really not about her transness, except like once when somebody is like really, really sexist to her and she's like, hey, and the person denies it. And she's like, no, hey, believe me, I can absolutely tell when you're being a dick to me because I'm a woman.
0: <laughs> I mean, one thing that I really haven't touched on yet is where the genre has room to grow. I mean, I think it it we've sort of already touched on this. It needs to grow into more of a genre. <laughs> it needs
2: to exist. Yes, it needs um, to
0: Uh, proliferate, and there needs to be more of it. Um,
2: I mean, Aaron and I always joke, and it is a joke, I just want to really emphasize this, that if we were ever to start a press, which we really do not wish to do ever, because we just want to write stories, we would start a press that was only for poly stories. I I just think that would be really cool if there was a brand out there, just like people know when they want a certain type of gay romance. Um, There's, you know, a handful of presses everyone knows to turn to. Um, and even, you know, the tone can even sort of really differ between those presses. I think when people want darker stories, um, they know Riptide's probably a pretty good bet. They want sort of really, you know, genre romance tropes in um, MM. I think Dream Spinner's a, a really good bet. Um, I think Tour Care has been super great about bisexual characters. I, there's a lot of bisexual books there. And I think people know that. But I would love if there was a brand name where people were like, this is where I go for my poly romance. So if, if some other enterprising person out there wants to start that adventure. Um it would make me really happy.
1: If I'm not wrong, um a while back L T three did a call for a poly collection and I think I feel like we've
0: I don't know if it's out. I think it was intertwined. I, I remember that. Yeah, I
1: remember too I just I haven't I don't think I've edited any or if I did it was a while ago so I'm like I don't
2: know when that comes out vague
1: announcement
2: <laughs> I think I actually remember seeing that call too and it was like in the middle of like other things going on um, that we were writing I'm like oh well there's a perfect call we're totally not going to answer
1: it <laughs> I hate when that happens too because you're like oh I wish a call would come up that I want to oh oh I'm busy now <laughs> like when it finally does happen you are not prepared for it at all but yeah I know there's a couple of presses that do take Polly but it's one of those things where it's like their selection is so minimal because the submissions they get are so minimal. And then they also have to go through and make sure that it fits their brand and the qualities, like what they're looking for. So, I mean, this is another one of those things where we have to do a call to action and be like, please write and submit polyfiction to the presses that take it. And um, there are presses that take it i think actually instead of instead of doing the uh i normally do like oh the, these places have calls for submissions i think at the end of the episode in the in the description on the website we're going to just have links to presses that do for sure take holly fiction so definitely hit those up everybody read and write
0: it looks like uh i just have been looking at lt3 for the last couple minutes and it looks like Intertwine did come out and wow, there are i'm good and and lt3 actually does have a um poly section if you look under there by identity tag with 56 books in it so check it out Hey, okay.
2: i don't think i knew that so that's that's exciting
0: i, I, I didn't know it was that expect. many
1: either and i i should i'm the worst <laughs> yeah i'm like i know that there was a call for Polly, I don't know if it came out. It definitely did. Yeah, um, Intertwined the collection is out, so everyone check that out because yay more Polly. Yeah, that'll be that'll be our our instead of our regular call for admission. It will be go check these things out, and then also I mean like hint hint to to companies to publishers that don't currently accept it. Like you should, because I feel like it's one of those things. Um. Like, you can make money from this if you figure out how to do it. (laughs) So it's like, why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Like, there is a readership for this.
2: Also, I mean, it's funny. I mean, one of the things I think is that the actual poly community... Like I don't think they know that there are romance books out there that are actually relevant to those experiences because like tons of my poly friends are like oh I don't read romance because it's all about like jealousy and insecurity it's like well first of all not all romances are about that whether they're monogamous or poly so number one that's a misconception number two hey poly romances exist so I mean I definitely feel like when we do have this new book come out like I'm gonna try to reach out to you know not just romance blogs but to poly blogs and and hopefully sort of find those readers who maybe want to be reading romances but just haven't found romances that have felt relevant um, to them before. But the other argument to publishers is, like, Go on Tumblr and look at all the people complaining about every love triangle relationship <laughs> plotline on every TV show. And the and you know why have a love triangle when you could just have yes, you know why? <laughs> the, the solution to this incredibly stupid plot is poly. <laughs> people want these stories, um, regardless of whether they're poly um, or not, because I think they're a bre- breath of fresh air to a lot of the sort of jealousy, competition, insecurity plot lines that I won't we even remotely blame on the romance community i'll just blame on like what's on television mm-hmm.
1: yeah instead of the verses or team it's like why why are you doing this to me why are you making me th- sit through this artificial conflict can't you just make them get together be so much it would be so much better oh
2: i mean like nobody watched leverage because they thought those people weren't all in a poly relationship
1: <laughs> right absolutely i feel like every leverage fan is listening and like f- uh pumping their fist i almost said fisting their pump <laughs> <laughs>
0: An entirely That's totally different. different image.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is it well, though? <laughs> at least I haven't said the most awkward thing on this call. <laughs> you can
1: always count on me to say possibly the weirdest thing on any given podcast.
2: Shout out
0: to everyone who's watching this, listening to this, and fisting right now. Your dedication <laughs> is incredible. <laughs> Focus on your partner, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, like maybe don't get distracted by our dulcet tones. <laughs> Refresh that. Never mind. I'm not taking this. <laughs> moving f- on. Moving on. further than it needs to go. Um, I think we're actually pretty close to wrapping up. Unless um, Austin, there's another topic on on there that we didn't at least touch on.
0: Uh, no, my 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 notes were mainly about talking about where the genre had room to go. But uh, as we've already said, anywhere it, needs to, <laughs> it needs to go somewhere.
1: It needs to. It needs the fuel. It needs
0: the inertia, and it it needs the support <laughs> of readers and publishers, and it needs more outreach to actual poly communities. Yeah, because there's there's uh, presumably some interest
1: there. Presumably. Well, it's like we were we were talking about, I think even in our inaugural episode or one of them, uh, one of the early ones, we were saying like there's a whole swath of queer folks and they have no idea that queer romance exists. Like they have no earthly idea. They're like, that's a thing. And if we could find those people and put the books that they want to read into their hands, like the market would grow even more. But unfortunately, like there's a little bit of a disconnect because once you're in the industry, you know that it exists and it seems to permeate everywhere. But if you're outside of it, it's just you might not even know that it exists at all, let alone that it's as diverse as it is.
2: Which is funny. I mean, when we spend the amount of time that that we do about all the diversity problems <laughs> that so do exist. There's so many.
1: Think,
2: no, <laughs> and, and there are. I mean, it really, it, it, is, it is absolutely definitely a problem in terms of how white books can be, how cisgendered books can be, how everybody is 25 and has great abs, which for me is actually kind of really super boring. Um, I literally just spent brunch complaining to my partner about writing about abs. I'm like, why am I always having to write about how great their abs are? I just, I just don't even care. Um, <laughs> blame the blame the headless torso, like book covers. That's why. I know, I know. But but you know, the other thing that I was thinking about, and I'm, I'm sure that some some folks in, in the um, LGBT plus plus Q etc. letters, many um, community may object to, but I think there's a room for polyfiction in queer stories in particular, because at least. For my generation and right now, and this is going to change over time now that we have marriage equality in the U.S., but we didn't necessarily have our parents' relationships as blueprints for the types of relationships we were going to have. So I think there's always been more room in the queer community to question monogamy and to say, and to do monogamy as a choice as opposed to as a default. And, and I always hesitate to say that because does it sound like I'm saying, oh, queer people are more promiscuous, which I'm really not. I'm just saying that all of our choices about how we structure our relationships have for a long time because of the culture, because of the laws had to be more deliberate. And I think to some extent have encompassed more possibilities because of that. And, you know, you certainly don't need to be poly to, to read polyfiction or write polyfiction. Um, and, I, and I do just think it's a more natural fit sometimes with the queer community to be open to these types of love stories. That
0: was super awesome. And I think that is a perfect spot to end because
2: I won't yes. say anything
0: smarter than that for the rest of
1: no. this episode. <laughs> nope. We, we're tapped out. We, I blew Yay. I blew them all of mine on the fisting joke. Um, <laughs> that was where I wasted the rest of my
0: potential. That is it for this episode. Thank you so much to Rocheline for joining us and for the great conversation. Um, as always, if you'd like to continue this conversation on Twitter, we would be happy to talk to you. You can find me on Twitter at Austinchanted.
2: You can find me at, at Amanda H. Jean. And I'm at Rocheline underscore
0: M. Thanks so much for listening, everybody.
1: This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Dario DeFore, with graphics by Keezy Young, and music composed by Carly Ann Warden. Follow us on Twitter at VHR Podcast, add us on Facebook, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed.